day, and those who are visiting, I just want to say thank you for being here. Uh, before I go any further, I do want to dismiss our children to Children's Church, children through the third grade. Sorry, normally I do that before the, the prayer, but I just felt led to just go right into the prayer after our, our song together. Children through the third grade can head out if they would like for Children's Church. And as they're heading out, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. For the final time, we've been in this book of Ephesians since... Uh, the new year, and uh, coming now to our final message from our, our study in it, and I feel like we have only scratched the surface. I feel like we've only dipped our toes in the ocean of truth that is available to us in this wonderful, wonderful book, Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read our text, follow along, where we're just looking at the last several verses, beginning in verse 21, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. Paul's concluding his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, he writes this, but that ye also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Graced be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity or in incorruptibility. Amen. Run into an interesting name here in this text, the name Tychicus. And been thinking about this. Uh, got some exciting news to share with our church. Uh, we're going to be adding another Sinclair to the mix coming in December. So if you thought that three of us was too much for the world to handle, we'll be adding another one, Lord willing. And uh, be praying for us, be praying for the pregnancy. But when you've got another child coming along, you start thinking about names. We've got Timothy and you know, Bible names. We want to keep that going. We've got a T. Tychicus, maybe we should put that on the list. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to put uh, Tychicus uh, on that list. I'm sure in like, you know, Puritan New England, that was a name that was, that was used, uh, kicking some of those things around. Um, but one of those things you think about when you've got another baby on the way is what kind of name do you want to saddle him with for the rest of his life? The Bible gives us some pretty good options, right? We've already got a Timothy. There's some great names like, like John and, 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 and names along those lines. Um, there's other names like Mayor Shallow, Hashbaz. I think we're going to just kind of rule that one out. We're not going to go that direction. Methuselah, uh, probably not a good baby name. Uh, Philemon, Bonnie, and dozens of others that are on zero new baby lists. So some of these names are well-known, some of them are less well-known. And it's one of those less well-known names that we are looking at in our text today, that name, Tychicus. He shows up several times in the New Testament. He's commended multiple times. He's one of those figures, if we were to list like, hey, give me the top ten people in the New Testament, we'd be like, well, Jesus, of course, and Peter, and, and there's Paul, and there's John, and there's John the Baptist, and a number of the probable chances are Tychicus would not make, make it onto any of our lists of most important figures in the New Testament. And yet Paul has this beautiful commendation of this brother in Christ, this man who God used in some tremendous, tremendous ways. Now, one thing I want you to notice as we conclude this letter, just the final words Paul has in verse 24, grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's Paul's normal way of signing off a letter. He always sort of ends like grace to you, sort of signed Paul. But there's a special significance this takes on in the book of Ephesians. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, where we started all the way back that first Sunday in January, listen to how Paul starts the letter to the Ephesians. He says, Paul, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you. There's like this prayer wish for, for God's grace to be showered upon the Ephesians. He begins the letter with grace, and he ends the letter with grace. And grace is what ties it together. Grace is like this, this thread that runs all the way through the letter. Grace is like the clothesline through the letter that everything else sort of hangs on as we go our way. The letter is all about God's riches that he has showered on us that make us one in Christ. The first three chapters of Ephesians lay out the blessings that we have in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have infinite riches on your spiritual bank account. Paul lays them out in in this beautiful word of praise in verses 3 to 14. And then he prays for the very things that he just thanked God for to be a reality in verses 15 down through 23. Then chapter 2, he revels in the fact that God raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life when the gospel came to us. With this famous phrase here in verse 8, for by grace you are saved through faith. But here's the reality of Ephesians. God's grace doesn't merely make us alive. God's grace does not merely save us from eternity in hell. God's grace transforms us and changes us. So the rest of the chapter, he talks about the, how God's grace, how the message of the gospel, not only has made us right with God on an individual level, but has made us right with each other on a corporate level. And this is the burden Paul has in this letter is to say, guys, Jews and Gentiles who historically have been at odds, who have historically hated each other, Gentiles who historically have been shut out from the covenants and the promises of God, something new is going on. And because of the cross work of Jesus, we've been made one. God is making a new humanity, a new race of humans, so to speak, not Jews and Gentiles, but believers in Jesus Christ. And he says he's making you a temple, a single temple to be the dwelling place of God, the unity of believers. That's the message of this book. The same gospel that saves us is not just about me and Jesus. It's about us. It's about we. It's about unity between believers of all times and places and ages and history, all cultures and backgrounds, being one in Christ. Chapter 3, Paul revels in the ministry that God's given to him. And again, where did he get this ministry from? God's grace. He says in verse 2, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God given to me for you. He's saying this ministry that I have, that Paul has of taking the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles, of declaring the newness of God's plan, this plan that God has hidden in the ages, but he's now unveiling, the new covenant, the, the unity between Jew and Gentile in the church. Paul's like, God has given me this immense privilege by grace to be able to declare that. He makes it clear in verse 8, unto me who am the less than the least of all saints is this grace given. In other words, grace is not just God saving us. It's not just God making us one. It's God empowering us to, to serve him and to make the gospel known. By the way, if you trace sort of Paul, the trajectory of Paul's life, in, in Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. The, the apostles, the 12, like the leaders of the early churches. I'm kind of the bottom of the heap. Here he is a few years later. He says, of all the saints, all the Christians, I'm the least of all saints. And then a few years later in, in 1 Timothy, Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. As Paul goes along, his awareness of God's grace becomes greater and greater, and therefore his awareness of his sin and his unworthiness becomes greater and greater. One of the signs that you've passed from death unto life is you have an ever-increasing awareness of God's grace. 
of the fact that we do not deserve one shred of what we've gotten. We don't deserve any of it, and God has given it to us. Well, then chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul then will say, if that's all true, here's how you should live. If you're rich, here's how rich people live. If you've got all the riches of Christ and God's grace, here's how this changes your life. It changes the way you walk. And so he uses this theme of walk to to tie this together. He says, you're going to walk in unity. Hey, if God's grace has has positionally made you one in Christ, that every Christian is your brother or sister, get along, right? If you're going to spend eternity together, let's practice getting along now. Walk together in in unity. Then he'll talk about walk together in newness. If God has raised you from death to life, he's pulled you out of the tomb and the rottenness and the decay and the stench of sin, don't walk as other Gentiles walk in the corruption of their minds. That's not who you are anymore. You've put off the old man. You've put on the new man. You're being renewed. You're being transformed. And then he'll say in chapter 5, and walk in love. We've been made one with Jesus. We've been made one in Christ, we ought to walk in love and charity and affection and sacrifice for each other. And in this purity, true love is, is pure. It's not about me, 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 what I can get, but it's about giving. And then I'll talk about walking in wisdom, and that means being filled with the Spirit. And then the filling of the Spirit is going to overflow cascading waves of spiritual power into all the relationships of our lives. It'll change what your marriage looks like. It will change what your relationship with your children looks like. It will change how you do your job Monday to Saturday. Paul unpacks all of that in chapter 5 into chapter 6. And then where we've been for the last few weeks, Paul will then come along and say, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He changes the image again to say the Christian life is not only a daily walk, an ordinary walk, it's a war. It's a fight. Be strong in the Lord. We don't get the resources on our own. Those resources come from God. Now, we've not really defined God's grace. What is grace? It is simply God's generosity. That's it. It's generosity. Generosity, by definition, is not based on... If I, if I earn, generosity is no longer generosity. It's something you give me that I deserve. Generosity is undeserved. It's unmerited and is based on the freeness and the riches of the person who is giving. God's unmerited favor gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness. So when Paul comes to conclude this letter, grace to all those who are loving our Lord Jesus Christ, this is not just sort of a nicety to say, sincerely, Paul, the end. This is meant to be the final swing of the hammer to drive in that nail, right? This is sort of to be like, let me just make sure the point is coming across to you. Now, what's Paul's concern been throughout the letter? That the believers enjoy the riches, enjoy the unity that they have in Christ. How do you prevent a church from crumbling, from splintering? I've been part of a church split before at a different point in my life, and it's ugly. It's horrible. We hear today of churches that, that split, that break apart, Christians who won't speak to, a, to each other, Christians who don't walk in that unity of the Spirit that Paul talks about. What is the glue that will tie us together? Just take a quick glance around the room. We've got a pretty diverse group of people here, different ages, different backgrounds, We even have some people who are from up north, like, man, this is a pretty diverse group of people. Like, that naturally wouldn't get along, right? If you put us all in the same room, and if we had, if we didn't have Jesus in common, we may have a pretty hard time to find one thing that would unite all of us. What is it, what is the glue that will keep churches together? What is the glue that holds believers together in spite of all the diversity of opinions and backgrounds and ages and viewpoints and preferences and tastes? Let me tell you, it's God's. Grace. 
God's grace is the tie that binds us together. It's the glue that holds us together. It's the invisible cord that ties me to other brothers and sisters in Christ. So I want to just walk through this passage to to notice the relationships that are unpacked here. We've got Paul who is writing. We've got Tychicus who he is sending to deliver the letter. We've got the Ephesians who are receiving the letter. And then the, the, the fourth individual who's sort of here that, that we don't actually have in the outline, but you can add to, to the outline is Jesus, who's tying us all together. Here's Paul. He's under house arrest in Rome. Here's the church at Ephesus that's across the Aegean Sea in modern-day Turkey. So think about where, where Italy is. Think about where Turkey is. They're separated geographically. Paul does not have the freedom to come to them. So what does he do? He writes a letter. He sends this guy Tychicus to deliver this letter so that they can enjoy their unity in, in Christ in spite of the geographical divide. So notice this three-way, or if we even want to say four-way, relationship of grace that ties us together as believers. we got Paul. We're going to call him the instrument of grace. He's the one writing the letter who is sort of the instrument of God's grace coming to them. Now, God's grace ultimately comes to us through faith, but he uses messengers. He uses human individuals to to be the, the instrument of bringing that to us. These final verses can feel pretty mundane and uninspiring. I'm sending Tychicus. He's going to tell you how I'm doing. Grace to you and peace. See you later. But there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. If you read Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20, you'll find out that Paul has a deep, long-standing relationship with the Christians in Asia Minor, in the city of Ephesus, the region around. He stopped there at the end of his second missionary journey, preached in the synagogues. He came back on his third missionary journey, and according to Acts 19, verse 10, he continued preaching and reaching out to the areas around Ephesus. Think of Ephesus as a major city center, like Manhattan. And then he's reaching out to all of the cities and suburbs around for two years preaching the gospel. There's a riot. He's run out of town. On his way to Jerusalem, he swings by Miletus. He calls the elders of the church. Acts chapter 20, there's this incredibly touching scene where Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And the Spirit's telling me that it's going to be really bad and bonds and affliction await me. And you're never going to see me again. Just a touching scene. He says, remember, I was with you day and night preaching. I was here with you for the space of three years warning and teaching. And Paul's heart is bound up with these people. He's an instrument of God's grace. He's like a spiritual father who led these believers to Jesus, who discipled them, who taught them publicly and from house to house, so both in church services and home Bible studies. He's teaching repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I've not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. He has taught them, so to speak, Genesis to Revelation, though the whole Bible is not yet finished at this point, but he's teaching them the full counsel of God. He has poured himself out into the lives of these saints. And now he is under house arrest in Rome, and so he writes a letter. You see, all of us need a Paul in our lives. Someone who is further along in your spiritual walk who can say, follow me even as I follow Christ. Now, that maybe sounds like a really arrogant, blasphemous thing to say. Hey, follow me just like I follow Jesus. You know, Paul literally says that in some of his letters. You need someone who is further along than you in your walk with Jesus who has conquered some of the sins that you struggle with, who's overcome some of the difficulties that you, have, that you are currently battling, who've climbed some of the mountains already that are ahead of you, who can sort of throw the rope down to you and say, grab hold of it, or, okay, we're going through the deep snow, put your feet right where I put my feet, hold on to me, follow me as I follow Christ. You need a Paul. You need someone who is able to mentor you. You know, what keeps us from having those kinds of relationships? 
let's be honest, is pride. We don't really want to acknowledge the fact a lot of times that we don't have it all together. We don't like to, you know, men don't like to ask for directions. We don't like to sort of, could someone give me spiritual directions and help me with my walk with Jesus? Or I'm reading the Bible and I'm getting nothing out of it. Could you help me understand? Could you give me some tips for Bible study? Or could you hold me accountable for my prayer life? We've been talking in fellowship group this last week about prayer. So I don't have to say, oh yeah, my prayer life stinks. I need to do better. Why not say, here's someone who's got a prayer life. Could you help me? We all need a Paul in our lives, someone to invest at the same time, we all eventually need to get to a place where we are a Paul for someone else. I don't mean like a Paul bearer for someone else, but a Paul for someone else who's able to come along and say, I've now gotten to a place, now I'm going to help the people behind me. Maybe they're the same age, maybe they're younger. But you can say, I'm going to take that teenager under wing and just tell them what God's told me. Just invest in them, just teach them. Older women, according to Titus 2, should be teaching the younger women. So the kind of relationship Paul has with these believers. He's got a meaningful relationship with them and a relationship that he continues now. He's not just writing this letter out of the blue. This is a letter that is overflowing out of his passion for these people. Paul says something stunning in his letter to the, to the Thessalonians. He says, you are my crown and rejoicing in the Lord. Like Paul has, he's not sort of shielding himself from the emotional hardship that comes when you love someone. C.S. Lewis said, if you love someone, you will, be, you will have your heart broken, right? You, you pour your life and say, I'm gonna, you, you love a spouse, and chances are one of you is going to go to heaven before the other one, and your heart's going to be broken. You're going to pour your life into someone to follow Jesus, and they might leave a knife in your back at some point. To love someone is to set yourself up for heartache, and Paul had his heart broken again and again and again, and yet he continued to put himself out there. That's what it is to be Christ-like. He's the instrument of grace through this gospel preaching, but through this meaningful, mentoring kind of relationship that continued on. I just want to read some of Acts chapter 20. I referenced it a minute ago. But listen to his heart of what he says to the leader. So here he is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows that he may even face death. He calls for the elders, the pastors of the church at Ephesus in verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 18. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day I came into Asia, okay, that's their province. That's sort of like, hey, remember when I came to Alabama? He's like, the whole time I've been with you. After what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Paul was harassed. He was persecuted the whole time he was ministering there. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. He's like, I, I gave you everything that I had, all the resources I had spiritually. And have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a good summary of the gospel message. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Same message for Jews, same message for Gentiles, same gospel for everyone, same gospel Old Testament as New Testament. And now I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more." Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. That's a stunning thing to say. 
I've given the gospel so clearly to all of you that if you reject Christ, it's not because I was unfaithful. I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. He's speaking to the pastors of the church. He's saying, your job calls them elders, he calls them overseers, he calls them to feed, that is to pastor. It's like, your job is to oversee and to watch. For this I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Paul can sort of look down the road and see the division and deception that's coming. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone day and night with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to the grace of God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. Notice he's commending them to God's grace. So even when he left them a few years earlier, it was God's grace, God's grace. That's what's going to sustain you. Which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. I've coveted, coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, yourselves, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that ye so laboring ought to support the weak, and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus when he said, It's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him unto the ship. Really touching scene. That was the last time Paul was with these guys. And he continues the relationship writing this letter. As we think about God's grace tying us together, it's not just this mystical, oh, God's grace. It's relationships. God's grace through these meaningful, mentoring, pour-yourself-out-for-each-other kind of relationships. I'll be honest, this scares me. I'll be honest, this kind of thing of saying, I'm going to put myself out there and you might be rejected. You might invest in someone and mentor someone and disciple someone, and then they walk away from the faith. That's scary. It's easier to sort of close yourself off. But Paul did not do that. So when I say Paul's an instrument of God's grace, he's the one who comes and preaches the gospel. He's the one who pours his life into them. If we're going to say, let's take the message of Ephesians and live it out, it's going to mean let's start living out these kinds of relationships. Remember the message of the book of Ephesians? We have unity as believers. We're going to enjoy that unity in real relationships. That means prioritizing the gathering of the church. That's going to mean saying developing a real sense of community. Sometimes people will say, you know, I can't go to church anymore. I just don't feel any community. You'd be like, well, you come once every three months. You're not going to feel community unless you... You come early and you stay late and you come to the gatherings and you pour yourself into the fellowship groups and you say, I'm going to build relationships. The message of Ephesians is that the church of Jesus Christ is not just a gathering of individuals, it's an interconnected body. It's not just a bunch of individuals fending for themselves, but it's an ever-growing family. It's an expansive nation. It's a tightly built-together temple. It's a bride in union with Christ. Grace is what unites us. Grace is what ties us together, and Paul epitomizes that for us. But we'll move on to the second character. We mentioned this guy in the introduction, the guy Tychicus. Verse 21 and 22, back to Ephesians 6. We'll be here pretty much for the remainder of our time. 
But that ye may know my affairs, how I do take a kiss of beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, that he might comfort your hearts. Here's Tychicus. He's the messenger of grace. Paul can't come, so he sends Tychicus to go and deliver the letter. He's a trusted messenger. Now, Tychicus's name means lucky, suggests probably he's of a pagan background who comes to faith in Jesus. And here's the thing with Tychicus. If it were not for Tychicus from a human level, we would not have the book of Ephesians in our Bible. There's every indication Tychicus is the one literally holding the pen as Paul dictates. That was Paul's method. He would dictate his letters and a scribe would write it down for him. Tychicus more than likely is the one who takes this letter in hand and makes the dangerous journey over the Aegean and delivers it to the church at Ephesus and says, read it and make sure it gets to the other churches. This exact same message, verses 21 and 22, are repeated almost word for word at the end of Colossians. Tychicus is carrying a couple of letters in his hand. He's got Ephesians in one hand and Colossians in the other hand, and he delivers them at the same time. He's got another little letter that goes along with him to a guy in the church of Colossae called the letter to Philemon. So there's three letters that he's going to deliver in one trip. We wouldn't have these books in our Bible if Tychicus were not a faithful messenger of God's grace. That's how God saw to it that, that, we, that we got them, that they got from the, the mind of God to the mind of Paul to the parchment to the paper and delivered to their recipients. Now, who is he? According to Acts chapter 20, he's actually from the area of Ephesus. He's from Asia Minor. They probably know him. He's probably even a member of their church. What's he doing in Rome? He's voluntarily come to hang out with Paul who's under house arrest. Think about it. If you had a friend who went to jail and there was the option to be like, hey, you can sign up to go to jail with them to keep them company. I don't think any of us would be takers. We'd be like, we'll pray for you. We'll send a care package. Tychicus came, and he's like, I am the care package. Epaphroditus came. He says, I am the care package. I'm here to deliver God's, to be the emblem of God's love from God's people. Later on in Paul's ministry, Paul seems to have gotten released from this imprisonment, and he sends emissaries everywhere. He's got a guy named Titus who's on the island of Crete. In Titus 3, verse 12, Paul is listing out, you know, I'm going to send Tychicus or some other guy to come down and relieve you. It's, it's more than likely that Tychicus comes to relieve Titus on the island of Crete, again, carrying a letter in hand, the letter to Titus. At the end of Paul's life, the final thing Paul ever writes, 2 Timothy, he's, under, he's in his second Roman imprisonment. He is facing the chopping block, quite literally. He is going to be decapitated, according to church tradition, by the emperor Nero. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, come quickly. Everyone I have sent is is off doing different things. He says, I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Okay, where's Timothy at? In Ephesus. Again, he's sending Tychicus to relieve Timothy so Timothy can come to Paul. Again, probably carrying the letter, 2 Timothy. This is absolutely stunning. According to New Testament scholar Harold Honer, it's through Tychicus and by Tychicus' hand that we have... These letters delivered, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, and Titus. This guy is sort of an unsung hero who is faithful in the little thing of delivering a letter, yet how many people will be in heaven one day because they read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? How many Christians have been massively helped by these letters? How many? Think about what we have in Titus, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Think about Titus chapter 3. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. 
We have access to that because Tychicus was a faithful messenger. See, it's easy to say, oh, we need a Paul. We need a spiritual leader, this guy who's, you know, a powerful missionary, and praise God for Paul. But Paul always had a Timothy. Paul always had a Titus. Paul always had a Tychicus. Paul always had a Barnabas. He always had a Silas. And we need one as well. You see, it's easy to say, well, the guy who gets up and preaches the sermons, he's important. But in God's economy, both the person who preaches and the person who silently prays are of equal importance. In God's economy, the man who writes the letter and the man who delivers the letter are both essential. In God's economy, both the inspiring leader and the anonymous servant matter. You think, well, the ministry that I do, nobody sees. I just quietly pray through the prayer list every day or pray through the church directory or, or send notes of encouragement to people. All I do is just go grab coffee with people and ask them how their devotions are doing. Little as much when God is in it. Little as much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. So do not despise Tychicus. Celebrate Tychicus. Every Paul needs a Tychicus. Luther had Melanchthon. Washington had Hamilton. Lee had Jackson. Churches need Preachers, and they need servants. They need elders, and they need deacons. We need preachers, and we need prayers. Now, notice how Paul describes the, this Tychicus guy, who's an, the messenger of grace, the one delivering the letter. Verse 21, he says, okay, Tychicus is going to come and tell you guys how I'm doing. By the way, the fact that Paul three times emphasizes how I'm actually doing, Tychicus is going to be the one to let you know underscores how important this relationship is with Paul. It's not enough for Paul to back the truck up and dump a bunch of theological truth. It is theological truth in the context of a close relationship between Paul and his readers. He says, Tychicus will fill in those details. Paul's description of Tychicus is just beautiful. He says he's a beloved brother and he's a faithful servant in the Lord. Paul repeats that in sending him to Colossae in Colossians 4, 7, and 8. And you see, while Tychicus's role is that of messenger, he's not the author, he's just the one to deliver the letter, Paul says he's a brother. Even though we've got different tasks, we're on equal footing in the kingdom of God. He's a brother. He's a brother in Christ because we have the same father. That's one of those themes that's hit again and again in Ephesians. Go back and read Ephesians and notice how often Paul highlights the fact that God is is father. Notice how often he highlights the trinity. The Father has chosen us, the Son has redeemed us, the Spirit seals us. And we get that kind of theme again and again and again. The fatherhood of God for His children makes us brothers in Christ. And not just any brother, the beloved brother. Paul's like, I love this guy. This is a guy who I can trust. This is a guy who I have affection for. He's Paul's spiritual partner, his equal in the economy of the kingdom. Brothers in Christ, in spite of the fact Paul's a highly educated Jewish guy from Tarsus. And Tychicus is a guy whose name means lucky. And Paul's a brother. Love this guy in spite of how different we are. Tychicus, I think, is a warm-hearted relational kind of guy. He's a guy who would come in and he's given the hugs and he's greeting everyone. And he knows everybody's name. I get that feeling that's what he's like. We need people like that in our church. He's called a faithful minister, a faithful servant of the Lord. Now, beloved brother emphasizes the horizontal relationship between Paul and Tychicus, but servant in the Lord is the vertical. Ultimately, what matters about Tychicus is who he serves. He serves 
the Master, Jesus. It's only under the supreme lordship of Jesus that we can enjoy partnership in the body of Christ. Listen, if everybody thinks that they're the head, we're all going to be banging heads, right? But when we recognize Jesus is the head, he's the Lord of the church, he's the master, he's the one before whom we bow, and all of us are servants for his sake, then we can have unity. We say, we're all following Jesus, we're all obeying Jesus, we're all worshiping Jesus, we're all chasing hard after Jesus. Listen, if we all start running after Jesus, you'll look around and realize we're all running in the same direction. He's a servant in the Lord. I love that word faithful. Paul's giving Tychicus important, but let's be honest, menial tasks. Paul would have no way to know, like, did that letter actually make it to Ephesus? He could have been, I lost it in a storm, Paul, out there on the boat. But you don't get the feeling Paul is always having to check up on Tychicus to be like, could you, I, I told you three weeks ago to take the letter. Like, why is it not there yet? He's trustworthy in the little things. Someone says the greatest, abil- greatest ability is dependability, getting places on time, doing what you say without people having to check up again and again and again, just serving God because it's the right thing to do, not because someone is nagging you about it. So Paul sends him. Now, he also says this in verse 22. He says, I've sent him unto you for the same purpose that ye may know of our affairs, that he might comfort your hearts. We find out as well that Tychicus is an encourager. He's not just a faithful, like, deliver message boy who just hears the message, see you later. But he's going to come and deliver Paul's heart to them. Some critics have read the book of Ephesians. They're like, you know, this is kind of weird. Paul spent more time at the church at Ephesus, and yet there's not one greeting that he sends. You read the end of Romans, Romans 16. Paul's never been to Rome, and yet there's an entire chapter where he's like, greet this guy, greet this guy, greet this guy, greet this guy. And yet here's a church that he spent three years at, and he doesn't say hi to anyone. And so some, some scholars, scholars and critics have like, oh, Paul couldn't have written Ephesians. It's a forgery. Some, some Pauline, uh, uh, you know, disciple wrote it and put Paul's name on it and made it sound like Paul and look like Paul and taste like Paul, but not actually Paul. I think the reason why there's no uh, greetings here is this letter is not just for the church at Ephesus, but for all those other churches Paul started. It's a letter that's going to be passed around. It's a circular letter. So where do the the greetings come in? Hey, Tychicus, he's going to do all the personal stuff. So you can almost see Paul as Tychicus gets on his horse to deliver the letter, say, hey, make sure you say hi to this guy and to this guy and to this guy, and send greetings to them, and make sure you say hi to this person. He's going to come and deliver the personal message. He's going to come and encourage, as verse 22 says, that he might comfort, that he might encourage, is the word, encourage your hearts. The heart speaks of the core of our personality. We use the word heart to kind of refer to our emotions. Like, oh, man, that really touched my heart, like stirred my emotions. Biblically, heart refers to the core of your personality. It talks about your, your highest set of affections and values, what drives what you choose and drives what you think. That's the heart. Sometimes we get the word spirit or the word soul, this, the, the, the entirety of your, your interior life, who you really are. Paul's like, I want to encourage that. I don't want to just give sort of emotional feeling, like play some loud music and everybody feels good, but I really want to encourage your heart to where you'll follow after Jesus. I think in today's world, and it's probably true in any time in history, we're not in danger of being too encouraged. We're rather in danger of becoming discouraged, of losing heart, of being convinced that, why bother? This isn't worth it. It's raining right now. It's overcast and doom and gloom and everything's getting bad and awful and you spend all day just kind of reading Fox News and, and wallowing in how bad things are. 
I think things often seem a lot worse than they, than they really are because, let's be honest, bad news is what gets eyeballs. But from a spiritual standpoint, Christians, we as individuals need to be encouraged to know that like, we are going to one day make it across the finish line. We one day will make it home. To know that through the power of Jesus, you can have victory over sin. To know that by the power of Jesus, you can get over the, 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 the hardships of your past and you can conquer bitterness that is hanging on to you. To know that through the power of Jesus, there is hope for your marriage. To know that through the power of Jesus, your kids can be transformed by the gospel. To know that they can all be worth it when we see Christ. What does Paul do when he wants to encourage the church? He sends a letter, and he sends Tychicus to sort of be his presence. He prays. These are really simple things, beloved. If you want to be an encouragement to other people, pray for them. Maybe send them a letter and be present. Paul would have been there himself. He can't, so he sends Tychicus sort of as his representative. Prayer and presence. Start praying for other Christians, and here's one of the most encouraging things you can do. Start praying and thanking God for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and after you've been at it a while, let them know about it. Not just, hey, I've just sort of been generally vaguely praying, God bless everybody in church. But like going through the directory and praying specifically and thanking God for what he's doing. You know how encouraging it is when someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, I, 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 I saw you teach that Sunday school lesson, and I was really helped by that. Not to make you have a big head, but to know God's using me, and I'm going to keep at it. Nothing will make you quit sooner than thinking you're not making a difference. Now, I'm not talking about flattery. Flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. I'm talking about real encouragement where you see, I'm seeing what God is doing in you and through you, and I'm rejoicing in it, I'm thanking God for it because he's the one who's making it happen. But I'm also letting you know that I notice, and I'm praying for you, and I'm letting you know that I'm praying for you. There's a large market today for genuine encouragers. There's no lack of negative Christians. There's no lack of self-appointed cynics. There's no lack of professional nitpickers. In a fallen world, it will always be easier to see all the bad things that are going on. If you make a negative prediction, you're more likely to get it right than if you make a positive prediction. That's just the way the world works. We need some people who have the audacity and the faith in God to, see, to, to, to go out of their way to be encouraging to brothers and sisters in Christ. Being a pessimistic prophet of doom and gloom is easy. Being an encourager is not. We need some salmon who will swim upstream against the current of negativity to say, I'm going to be an encouragement. Not in a fake, like, Overly sweet, Joel Osteen, everything is great and sunshine and roses and we're going to have puppies and everybody's going to get cookies kind of way. But in a real like, hey, even though we live in a fallen world and even though we're battling against sin, God is good and he's working in your life. That's Tychicus. He's a messenger of God's grace. Think about how that could bring even greater unity to Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Not just the gospel that we believe, Paul is the messenger, but the grace that is dispensed through prayer and through presence of a faithful brother like Tychicus. Some people come to a church like, I mean, give, me, give me a ministry to do. And what they mean is I want to be up in front and lead something. Maybe start with saying, I'm going to be a Tychicus. I'm going to be an encourager. I'm going to be a faithful brother and serve in a way that will bring joy to God's people. Now I want to bring in a final group of people, the Ephesians. They are the recipients of grace. Paul's the instrument, the one who delivers the gospel message that they have believed and trusted. 
Tychicus is the, the messenger who delivers the letter and also sort of delivers Paul's heart of being an encourager. But the Ephesians, they're the recipients. Verses 23 and 24, it's sort of like Paul then shifts gears here. He's, okay, Tychicus is going to come, verses 21 and 22. Verses 23 and 24, he now is signing off the letter. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you, with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Paul is basically following the letter-writing conventions of the day, which is when you would sign off a letter, there would be sort of a, a wish for people's good health at the end of the letter. So if you're a pagan, you'd be like, may Jupiter bless your endeavors, or may Mars do this, or, or whatever the case may be. I'm not, not up on my Greco-Roman deities. Um, Paul is taking this pagan form, and then he is completely and utterly transforming it. He's Christianizing it and saying, hey, we're not going to just say a best of luck to you. But he's saying, I'm going to express this prayer wish. It's not exactly a prayer, but the sense is Paul is like, I am praying for God to shower you with peace and love and faith and grace. Grace being the last one, the first thing he began with, and the final thing that he ends with. The Ephesians, he was, I want you to be the recipients of God's grace. Kent Hughes notes this. There is nothing more revealing about us than what we wish for those we most love. So Paul loves this church, and what does he want for them? He's not saying, I pray God that they would get better jobs and a pay raise and that they wouldn't be sick and that things would go well for them in the city. He's saying, what I want for you is you to enjoy God's peace and for you to enjoy God's love and to enjoy faith and ever-increasing, an ever-increasing experience of God's grace. What are the things that you really, really want for your kids? If you're a grandparent, what are the things you, you desperately want to see in the lives of your children, your grandchildren? I think if we're honest, a lot of the things that we most highly prize are things that won't last. Nothing wrong with wanting your kids to do well in school. Nothing wrong with wanting your kids to to have a good career and a a wonderful family and to live close by. Those are good things, but those are not ultimate things. You see, you might have kids who, they're on the honor roll and you got the sticker to prove it. And they got a good job and they're, they're making six figures and they live in a nice house and they have a pool and they have a boat and they go to Dauphin Island every weekend. But things are not right between them and their creator. See, you can have all the things that the world has. What does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What Paul wants more than anything, if you read Paul's prayers and Paul's benedictions at the end of the letters, what he is after more than anything is that the people he has an influence over would really know and trust Christ. So it's peace. Peace is not just a... Uh, like peace out kind of thing that he's saying here. It's not just, hey, may you have tranquil feelings in your heart and just sort of live a, a tranquil, happy life. In the book of Ephesians, peace is about a right relationship with God. Back up to Ephesians chapter 2 to see how Paul uses this. He's talking about how the Gentiles and the Jews were separate and the Gentiles had no access to a relationship with God. He says here, speaking of peace, beginning in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who are sometimes afar off, have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. In Colossians 1, he says that by by his cross he is 
reconciled us to God. In Romans 5, verse 1, he says, being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When he says peace, he is talking about nothing less than a reconciled relationship with God Almighty. There is nothing better than you could, what you could want for yourself or anyone else than that they would be right with God. Now, doesn't that term peace sort of imply something? It implies that our natural relationship with God is not one of reconciliation and peace, but it's one of hostility. Sin is an affront to God. Sin is a violation of his commandments. Sin is what separates us from God and makes us hostile to him and God even hostile to us. Romans 1 goes so far as to say God's wrath is actively being revealed from heaven against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wages of sin is death. Now, if that's the case, if the worst news in the world is that our relationship with God is horribly amiss, if the worst news in the world is that our relationship with God is irreparably broken because of our selfishness and our rebellion and our pride and our idolatry and our deception and and all the the ways that we sin against God in word and deed and thought and motive and desire, then the best news in the world is that we can be made right with God. How? Through the death of the death of Christ, through his work on the cross. Jesus reconciling, taking God and man and bringing us together again. Jesus bearing the hostility. Jesus bearing the wrath. Jesus bearing the justice. Jesus taking our sin and dying in our place so we can be made right with God. And Paul is saying, that's what I want for you, to enjoy that kind of right relationship with God and all the implications of it. You see, there's implications that if I'm right with God and if we're right with God, we're now made right with each other and we enjoy... Man, if whatever happens in life, whatever comes my way, I know my eternity is secure. That's the peace of God. Peace with God gives us the ability to face any trial down knowing that no matter what happens, nothing eternal will ever change. So I want that for you. Okay, he goes on to say, peace be to the brethren. So other Christians, I want you to enjoy all the implications of that peace. He then adds, love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have peace with God, we now have the ability to walk with one another in love. God's able to take people who are natural enemies, Jews and Gentiles, and be like, boom, you're one in Christ. What unites us as believers, it's not that we all sort of share common interests. It's that we have a common Savior. It's that we come as sinners who need to be forgiven, and we're forgiven at the foot of the cross. That word love is one of the key words in the book of Ephesians. It shows up 14 times in this letter. And throughout the letter, it's mostly about God's love for us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, because of his great love wherewith he loved us, has quickened us together. God's love for us and then the resulting love we have for each other. Because God loved us, we're able to love one another. And he says, with faith. Paul is praying that their faith, their faith that has brought them into a relationship with Jesus would continue. Their faith that's brought them into a relationship with Jesus would grow and would flourish. That they would be able to take hold of the shield of faith. Be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. These are the great blessings of the gospel. Peace, love, and faith. And he says this, they come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer here is not just, guys, try really hard to gin these things up. He's recognizing... That peace is a gift from God. He's recognizing that that love is a gift from God. He's recognizing that faith is a gift from God. 
He's saying all of these are blessings that, that, that just come pouring out to you from God. And so I'm praying for God to continue to lavish these on you. If you want lasting peace, maybe you're here today, you don't have that peace with God. Let me tell you, it's not going to be found inside of yourself. It's not going to be found in this church. It's going to be found only from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want a resting place for your faith, it's found only from God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want overflowing love that abounds to people that you don't normally find lovable, you're only going to get that from God our Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every good aspiration we have, every longing for glory that you experience, every encounter you have with beauty, every feeling of dissatisfaction with the brokenness of this world as it is, all of these are a longing for what is ultimately good, what is ultimately true, what is ultimately right, and that is Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer here today and you're longing for something, you're like, I've never found it. What you're actually longing for, whether or not you realize it, is Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the source of our, of our grace. So we come to the final verse, verse 24. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. This final priority that Paul is wishing and praying and longing for the Ephesians is an ever-increasing experience of God's grace. It's unleashed through the gospel. It's what makes us accepted. Grace literally is the word in the beloved one. It's what makes us, gives us new life in Christ. It's what empowers us for service. God's grace from beginning to end. There's not one millisecond of the Christian life in which you stand on your own merit. Banish from your mind the idea that I get saved by grace, but now I stand by keeping the rules. You stand only in grace. There's not a day that goes by where you don't need God's grace. There's not a moment that goes by in which you don't need God's grace. We need His grace every hour. Now, interesting that he says, to all them who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the dilemma. If grace is an unmerited gift that's given to the undeserving, it almost sounds like Paul's making a condition here, doesn't it? If you want to continue enjoying God's grace, you need to love Jesus. None of us naturally love Jesus. None of us can love Jesus without a work of grace in God's life. It's almost a catch-22. You must love Jesus in order to have grace, and you must have grace to love the Lord Jesus. Where this is going to start is God's going to take the initiative in showering grace on us. We're never the ones that make the first move. He makes the first move. But one of the signs, one of the surest signs that you have savingly experienced God's grace, you say, you know, I've, I've prayed a prayer to believe in Jesus, but I don't, I don't have assurance. Let me ask you this question. Do you experience an ever-increasing love for Jesus? That's one of the fruits. What's one of the, the signs of life, the pulse that your spiritual heart is beating, is that you have ever-increasing love for Jesus. So this, this comes full circle. This is the only place in the letter to the Ephesians where Paul talks about our love for Jesus. Scholar Andrew Lincoln writes this, Elsewhere, the letter has referred for God's love for believers and Christ's love for believers. It's referred to believers' love for one another, to believing husbands loving their wives, and to believers' love in general. This is the only place where their love for Christ is made explicit. And it's at the very end of of the letter, why? We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. We love because he took the initiative. We love because he in eternity past determined to set his love upon us. 
And that is what generates our love for him. Now, it ends with this, uh, our love for Jesus Christ in sincerity. The idea there is in, in corruption, into eternity. The book begins with a look back to the past horizon of eternity past. That he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And the book ends gazing off into the distant horizon of eternity future. And what does Paul see in the distant horizon of eternity future? God's grace continuing to be showered on his people. And God's people in response, loving Jesus with an ever-increasing love. Commentators are split to say, does the incorruption modify the love that we have for Jesus or the grace that God showers on us? And I say, yes. Right? It's both. His love, His grace towards us continues for eternity. And as a result, our love and our worship and our affection for Jesus never, ever ends. Now, have you gotten the message of Ephesians? One of the ways you know is this. Do you love Jesus more than you did six months ago when we started this? Can you say, oh, how I love Jesus? Now, you will only be able to love Jesus more if you marvel at his love. My love for Jesus is faltering. It's weak. It trips up and falls down all the time. It's like a little candle that's barely staying alive. But do you love Jesus more as a result of this encounter with his glory? You see, he's the source of our grace. He's the one who ultimately ties us together in this loving relationship with each other and to him. So what do we do? How do we respond to all of this? Let me just give you a few points of application as we, as we land the plane. Number one, celebrate his grace. We should never, ever, ever get over the fact that God has generously brought us into a relationship with him. Never. For all eternity, according to Ephesians 2.7, in the ages to come, we will be reveling in his grace and his kindness. You know what you'll be singing about in eternity? Amazing grace. Like, I have no reason, no business to be here walking these streets of gold and living in the new Jerusalem and walking out on the new heavens and the new earth, except for God's grace. Celebrate it. Come to church and really celebrate how awesome this is. Secondly, grow in grace. Second. Peter says, but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only should we be grateful in celebrating God's grace, but we should be growing in it. I become very, very concerned for Christians, people who claim to be Christians, who are not growing spiritually. Say, I'm not really learning anything new in my devotions. I'm not really going any deeper in my relationship with Jesus. There's not really anything new that I'm trying to overcome. I just sort of learned everything that I needed to 40 years ago, and I've never progressed past that. Grace humbles us and realize, it makes us realize how desperately we need it. And one of the signs of grace is that we grow in it. Let me give you a third point, rest in grace. So many Christians are exhausted and hurried and frantically running around trying to please this God by all their efforts and all their works. Rest in God's grace. We're accepted in the beloved one. In Christ I'm accepted in God's presence as if I were Jesus. Not because of my works. Rest in that. And then finally, give grace. Paul says earlier in the letter, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. He's forgiven you, you forgive others. He says, you're, you're loved by God, show that love to other people. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And this gets us onto this beautiful cycle where the more we receive God's grace, the more we marvel at God's grace, the more we show and shower God's grace to those who desperately need it.
amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We're going to sing that hymn in just a second, but here's my plea. If you're here today and you're like, that just sounds so amazingly good and I want that, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Stop trying to achieve it. You can't achieve a gift. You can only receive a gift. So Chris is going to come. He's going to lead us in amazing grace. We're going to sing all four verses.